We're in Acts chapter number 6 this morning, Acts chapter number 6. I uh, Last Sunday I preached on the right kind of church, preached longer than I wanted to, and I certainly don't want to preach that long today, so we're going to get right at it. But I do appreciate your attentiveness. It's such a joy to have a church congregation that is very attentive, hungry for the Word of God. Uh, it kind of made me think about the man who was uh, sitting there and watching his dog chase his tail. And he said to himself, he says, wow, how easily are dogs amused? And then he realized that he was watching his dog chase his tail. <laughs> but anyhow, thank you for being amused uh, and uh, for your attention. Um, Acts chapter number 6. And we're going to be taking a look at a verse that is sadly obscure to many believers, but it's a verse that every believer, every church member ought to be familiar with. Acts chapter number 6 and beginning in verse number 1, it says, And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. If you'll recall... This church at Jerusalem had grown, there was a multitude, and many of them had sold their lands and possessions and had just distributed those all to the apostles, and everybody was just all living together. You had unity, not only in heart, but you had unity in resources and so forth. And because of that, uh, there was a need here among some of the widows that was being neglected. Verse 2, And the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith." Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessings upon the Word of God today. We pray, Father, that you would lead us and guide us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that this message today would be instructional and would reinforce the doctrine that many have already learned. And I pray, God, that we would be a scriptural church and that as believers, we would have a scriptural understanding of what church is supposed to be like. And we pray that you would lead us and guide us, have your will and way, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to preach this morning on the first deacons. If you could, picture in your mind that here's this first church in Jerusalem. You certainly have quantity in this church. We read previously of believers added to this church. In one instance, 3,000 were added. In another instance, 5,000 were added. And certainly, as we just read, that many believers have been added, that seems like every day as they would gather around and as the apostles would preach the gospel, more and more people would be added to this church. So you had quantity. 
But what's interesting is not only did you have quantity, but you also had quality. Because this was a church that had one heart and one soul. This was a church that was totally sold out to God. This was a church that was a praying church, a preaching church, a powerful church. But we see in verse number one that this also was a church that developed some problems. Problems will always happen. I wonder, brothers and sisters, how many people have been hurt? How many of the world has, in their mind, lost credibility toward the church, or the church, rather, has lost credibility toward the world? How much confusion, how much frustration has taken place because believers don't understand and churches don't practice the biblical example of church administration. There will always be problems. The first thing that every believer needs to know is that this appointment of deacons was intended to solve church problems, not create church problems. While no narrative is given in the Bible that I'm aware, I mean, I haven't found anywhere where this type of a story is given regarding the establishment of the office of the pastor. And by the way, as you read throughout the New Testament, you'll find that the word pastor and bishop and elder are all used interchangeably within the same context. There's not an added hierarchy in the church. You have two offices that the Bible, the New Testament establishes in the local church, and that is the office of the pastor and the office of the deacon. But it can be observed that the pastor carries on the ministry of the apostles. The pastor is not an apostle. He hasn't seen the Lord. He doesn't have apostolic powers of signs and wonders and miracles like the apostles did. But he certainly has been entrusted to carry on the spiritual responsibilities and authority. Once again, he's not an apostle, but he does carry on their responsibilities. My observation of church, I grew up in church for the most part. I had a few years in my younger life that we weren't in church, but for the most part, I've been in churches all of my life. I've observed and I've heard testimonies of other people as well as my own personal experience that there are many traditions and expediencies that have developed in church administration over the years. Some are good. Some are take it or leave it. But some are dangerous to the body of Christ. There are traditions and expediencies and there are added titles and added offices and positions of which, depending on how they're carried about, they can be good, they can be bad, or they can be neither. I'll give you some examples. The term head deacon the term assistant pastor, the term trustee, uh, the term board, and the term that every pastor loves, committee. That was a joke if you know anything about pastors. I know of a pastor who had a sign right outside of his office door. It said, for God so loved the world that he did not send a committee. 
Now, in many cases, we if you've been around the block a time or two, if you've been around church, you know that uh, you understand why we chuckle and why we joke about that. Uh, if you've ever been in a open forum church business meeting, you know that sometimes it can really get out of hand and can really take on a life of its own. I, as a child, I was in some of those meetings and I didn't understand what was going on. But afterward, there would be all kinds of different huddles out in the front yard of the church and some people over here huddled and talking and whispering and some people over here. And I do remember one particular incident where that was going on and I, it was either my mom or my dad, I don't remember which one, but I said, hey, hey, what's going on? And they answered something kind of vague to protect me from knowing what was going on, but the next thing I knew is that the next week I was going to church in a different place. (laughs) As a child, I didn't understand all of that. But I know that there are many who have been hurt over church problems. And sometimes, and I've observed this, that positions or protocol has been established to try to protect a problem from occurring or to correct a problem that has occurred, but not really getting to the root of the matter. The root cause being the lack of spirituality, not the lack of protocol. You see, when we start doing things that depart from a scriptural principle. Now, there are many things within the local church that God doesn't spell out in detail. And the reason being is because He doesn't have to. Let's face it, in today's day and age, we're dealing with situations that are very different than this church in Jerusalem. Listen, we just did a remodel of our restrooms. They didn't have to worry about a building. They didn't have to worry about a lot of different things, but they had some things that they had to worry about that we don't, such as persecution from the high priests and so forth. And so we are having church in a different setting today where we own property, we have a building, and many things that go with that. And so because of that, some of the job descriptions and the way that we administrate has somewhat changed, but the same principles are in place. Here's a group of seven men that have been chosen, and what's their task? To wait on tables, to help meet the need of the widows who were being neglected in all of the, all of the, the chaos that seemed to be going on because this church had grown so fast. Now, I don't particularly like verse number 1 where it says how this need came to the attention of the apostles. It says that these Grecians were murmuring. Now, I will say this. If there are problems or needs that need to be met, there's better ways of addressing it than murmuring. Like murmuring is the worst way to address it. I guarantee you that if you are part of a good, godly, Bible-believing church and you have a godly, Bible-believing pastor. He cares about the flock and he cares about meeting needs. And yet at the same token, let's face it, that no church and no pastor can meet every need that exists because the needs are... I mean, it's a bottomless pit. 
And so that's why God doesn't spell out every single detail of the local church like He did the temple or the tabernacle worship back in the Old Testament. He spelled out everything in specific detail. Which, by the way, that didn't work out so well either. So what He did is He gave us something that's even better. He gave us the Holy Spirit. And that's why no matter what we do, brothers and sisters, if we are not full of the Holy Spirit, we are in dangerous, dangerous territory. If we try to produce a tradition or a man-made protocol to solve one problem, what happens is we inadvertently create another one. If we solve a problem for today's generation, then we create a problem for the next generation. I've known pastors who said, you know what, we're just not even going to have deacons. That might have solved his problem for that time, but it didn't necessarily help the church for the future who had a need to have deacons. I've known of problems where the pastor wasn't a good manager and he didn't manage the church finances ethically and biblically and he got the church in problem. And so the deacons decided, well, we're just going to take over and we're going to run the church and the pastor is going to work for us. That way we'll never be hurt by a pastor again. You know what? That doesn't work well at all because it violates a scriptural principle. I've also known pastors that, you know, it's like, well, hey, I'm the boss, I'm the pastor, I'm going to control everything. And they don't even care what their deacons have to say, and they don't make themselves accountable to the deacons. You fix one problem, but if you don't do it according to the Bible principles, you just end up creating three more, either immediately or in the future. It's kind of like the man who finally went to the doctor and got hearing aids. And, uh, you know, he had a, a follow-up checkup about a month later, and the doctor said, man, your hearing aids are working great. Your family must be really happy about it. And the man said, well, I haven't told them. He said, I just sit around and be quiet. He said, I've changed my will three times. <laughs> Fix one problem. So first of all, as we take a look at these first deacons, Let's take a look at the word meaning. If we're going to know what a deacon is, then it starts with what does the word mean? Well, in Strong's Concordance, we find the word diakonos. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Don't know, don't care. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I can read a Strong's Concordance, okay? I, I, it just, it amazes me preachers who try to sound so smart and superior and intelligent by running to the Greek and Hebrew and they don't really know it themselves. At least I admit it. But but it is a Greek word, and it means to run errands, it means an attendant, it means a waiter. Now, in our context, obviously, that is fitting to these first deacons. They are here to do a very menial task in taking care of the mealtime needs of these Grecian widows who have been being neglected. And so that makes sense. Now, you go to Webster's 1828 Dictionary, and you just simply find that a deacon is a minister or a servant. And so the deacon is an office, it is a position that is to take care of menial tasks to free up the preacher, the pastor, to do the spiritual tasks right within this context. The apostles said that, look, we don't, if we spend time 
taking care of these needs, it's going to take us away from prayer and preaching. And that's that's the thing that's most important. And so we need some men that can take care of this problem. You ask yourself the question, they're just serving tables. Why do they have to be so spiritual? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the people business. When you are in a position, people look up to you as an example. When you're in a position, being spiritual is so essential to be effective when it comes to working with people. Listen, just because you have a title in front of your name doesn't mean that you're competent to take care of the task. I can pull out my business card and I can say, see right there, it says Pastor Randy Mitchell. All right, so I am the pastor, but that doesn't mean anything if I am not a pastor. And so the most important thing is, am I pastoring? Do I understand what the Scripture, what the Bible says that I'm supposed to do as a pastor, or is it just a position of leadership? A a very good man of God, way better man of God than I'll ever be, made a statement. I referred to it last week. He said, everything rises and falls on leadership. To which I say, yes, there is some truth to that. If we are in a position of leadership, we need to make sure that we take ownership Not possession, but ownership, and we own that responsibility, and we do it as unto the Lord. That's important. That is effective. But at the same token, let's look at it from this standpoint. If a leader, and there are leaders who can accomplish great things, with or without God. Look around us. Look at the world. There are plenty. There are CEOs who are extremely successful, and they did it without God. They did it through hard work, through diligence, through uh, charisma or personality or tactic or whatever. But listen, if everything rises and falls in leadership, then that means that as a leader, if I created the results, that means I got to hold it all together. And you know what? That's too much for any man. I would rather just follow the Lord and do God's work His way and trust that he's got to take it to get he's got to hold it together he's got to make it work my responsibility is just simply to feed the flock of god and be a godly example the deacon the minister he is to serve he's to help out now notice in verse number 3 wherefore brethren look ye out among you seven seven what seven men no offense ladies but there is no scriptural precedence for a deaconess. All right, that is a man-made, uh, that is a man-made protocol, administrative thing. And these deacons are always. The Bible clearly teaches that pastors and deacons are men. That doesn't mean that ladies can't be a help. That doesn't mean that ladies can't serve. It means that the office of pastor and deacon are for the men. You say, well, why are you spending so much time laboring that point? Because it needs to be labored. Because the expediency issue has created more problems than it has ever solved. And the bottom line is it grieves the Holy Spirit. And uh, grieving the Holy Spirit 
we solve one problem and create ten, that's not a very wise decision. All right, so we have the definition of the word deacon. The next thing I want to take a look at is the concept of principle over process. Principle over process. Every church has a different process in which they put their deacons into office. In this scenario, in Acts chapter number 6 in Jerusalem, you had that the nomination of these seven men was from the people, but the appointment of them was from the apostles. You can see that clearly, that they said, look ye out among you seven men. And here's the type of men that we're looking for. But then it says, whom we may appoint over this business. Nomination was by the people. The appointment was ultimately by the apostles. Now, verse number five, I find is an amazing, amazing concept. It's impressive. Notice it says, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen and Nicanor and Timon and so forth. Can you imagine that? That the whole multitude came together and were in agreement? You know what you had going on here? You had the Holy Spirit is actively present. You know when the Holy Spirit is actively present among all of the believers, democracy becomes obsolete? How many things do we, the the average church, we take a vote over everything? Now I'm not saying that voting is wrong. I'm just simply saying that in this precedence, it's not what happened. You didn't have a vote. You didn't have a ballot. I understand that it's probably necessary when a church takes on a new pastor or when deacons are put into office that some type of election has become necessary. But do you know that if we were, all of us, what we ought to be, an election would be obsolete. Because we would all have the mind of God and we'd all know, we would recognize, we would discern who those people are and it would be a no-brainer. I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm causing indigestion now or what, but it's the truth. Now I realize that I'm talking pie in the sky, that that's probably to have a church where every single person is full of the Holy Ghost and walking with God, that's probably not going to happen. But notice I said probably not. I didn't say it's not possible. It's very possible. But the reality of it is, is that it doesn't happen. There are times when God says, look, this isn't my will, but this is the way that it's going to be, so I'll at least make some kind of a... um, way for you to get through it. Do you know that the divorce issue was God doing exactly that very thing? He said it wasn't God's will for a man and a woman to be divorced, but because of the hardness of your heart, Moses wrote you this principle. It's like, it's not the way that it's supposed to be, but it's what's going to happen. And so God said, well, here's how it needs to happen. There are times when an election, or there are things the way that we administrate in the church that we have to deal with the problems that are in front of us, and uh, there are some things that are nearly impossible to correct overnight. 
doesn't mean that we can't grow or go back to the Bible and start being what we ought to be and doing things that, the way that we ought to do. But it comes right back to you can use this exact, exact same protocol that went on in Acts chapter number 6, but if we're not full of the Holy Spirit, if we're not spiritual ourselves, then the protocol, the way that we do it, is just going to create a different problem than another protocol is going to create. So we've got to have some spiritual sense here. Some churches have lifetime deacons. Others have deacon rotations. Some have elections. Some have simple ratifications of men that the pastor presents to the church. No administrative method can replace the necessity of spirituality. Whether you agree or disagree with anything that I just said, what I just said right there needs to be remembered, and it is absolutely true. No way that we do it can replace the absolute necessity of spirituality. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in the details and the protocol that we miss the thing that is most important, and that is that we need the Holy Spirit actively working in our lives. And when He's actively working in our life, then we have the opportunity of hearing His voice and following His discernment. Oh, how many church problems would be avoided or corrected if we would just get our hearts right with God and live according to His principles. So, principle over process. The next thing that I want to focus on is quality over quantity. Uh, Some churches have a set number of deacons that they have. This church had seven deacons. Now, I know that there were more than 8,000 members, but I don't know how many more. And so, let's just say that there were just 8,000 members. That means that there was a ratio of one deacon for every 1,143 members. Here at Temple Baptist Church, we have 200 average, give or take a few, in attendance. That means we need 17.5% of a deacon. We are way overstaffed around here. Brother Yance, we need your, your, your right arm and your left foot. So really what we need to focus on is the quality of the men, not the quantity of the men. Here within our text, we've already read several things that are obvious regarding the quality of these seven men. They had to be of an honest report. Now, how do you be of an honest report? By being honest, right? If you're going to have the reputation, if people are going to view you as an honest person, then that means that you're not just honest at church, but you're honest at home. You're honest at work, and you're honest with your business dealings. You're honest with your family, and so forth. The more honest that we are, the more likely we are to have an honest report. I cannot control what people think of me. I cannot make people trust me, but I can control myself being trustworthy. And so that's all that I have any control over. The same thing goes with all of us. So the men had to be of honest report. They had to be full of the Holy Ghost. Now, this is not some kind of a mystical, hocus-pocus experience. Uh, we've seen that in, a number of weeks ago. They're at, the, uh, they're at Pentecost and with the Holy Spirit coming in. 
the Bible teaches clearly that if a man is full of the Holy Ghost, he's going to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. All of these things are going to be manifestations in his character, in his nature, in his personality, because the Holy Spirit is now controlling him. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. When someone gets drunk with wine, that wine controls their behavior. When a person is full of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will control our behavior. That's the kind of men that need to be deacons. That's the kind of men that God can use. And then it says that they're also full of wisdom. Wisdom is not just education and knowledge. Wisdom is something that God gives. It comes from God's Word. And it's, in short, it's how to take and use knowledge. It's being able to perceive some things and to be able to make good decisions based upon the principles that God's Word teaches. And then, of course, Stephen, it says, they chose him because he was a man full of faith. He was growing in his walk with the Lord. So our text reveals these qualifications, but if you'll hold your place and go to 1 Timothy chapter number 3, we're going to see that later on, the term deacon comes about. We find in numerous cases where Paul said that he's writing his letter to the bishops and deacons. And we find that this office in 1 Timothy chapter number 3, the expectations of these men, the quality of these men, are defined. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we find the qualifications, expectations, if you will, of those who would be pastors. We don't have time to go through all of those. We've done it uh, in the past. So we'll pick up in verse number 8, and we're going to see several things. And I'm going to list these in order. We'll talk about them as we go. In verse number 8, it says, likewise. Now, what that means, likewise, is God just spelled out a whole lot of details of what the pastor is supposed to be like. And then he says, likewise. What he's saying is that just as a pastor needs to be a good example to the flock in his character and testimony, so does the deacon. In fact, of the list that we're going to look at, six out of nine are practically identical to the expectations of the pastor. The next thing it says, likewise must the deacons be grave. Grave. I I remember growing up in church, and uh, what I used to understand as that word grave, I would have to say, well, we had some really grave deacons, because they weren't one bit happy. They were miserable. And, and, and then they'd sit there and I, I remember my dad would be preaching and he'd just be giving it, giving it all of his heart and they'd be sitting there. They're not, they don't seem to be happy about it. But the word grave doesn't mean what we think that it means today. If you look that word up, you find that the word grave means honorable and respectable. Of course, the word honorable has the root word of honest. Just like Acts chapter number 6 said, men of honest report, the word grave means that these deacons are supposed to be honorable and respectable men. Notice it says next that they are not double-tongued. 
Now, I don't have to take you to Webster's 1828 or the Greek or the Hebrew or uh, the Russian dictionary. <laughs> Double-tongued is really, really easy to understand. It means that they say one thing to your face, they say another thing behind your back. And let me tell you something, that is not a pleasant experience when people do business with you that way. The deacon is not supposed to be double-tongued. Listen, loyalty is an important characteristic of anybody in God's service. Now, I realize that there are times when loyalties can be divided. There can be times when the person to whom you have pledged loyalty to may betray that loyalty. I'm not saying that we should ever be 100% loyal to men, but we should always be 100% loyal to God. And there are ways that we deal with our differences or our disagreements that while we may disagree, we are not necessarily being disloyal. I, I know for me personally, I don't, I don't expect everyone to agree with me. My goodness, I don't always agree with myself. Sometimes, I mean, I'm a, I'm a work in progress and I understand some things today that I didn't years ago and I wouldn't expect everyone to agree with me at all times, but how you go about that disagreement is another issue. There's nothing worse than being in a position of leadership. I'll give you an example. As a pastor and walking out into the foyer in a group of five or six men all in a circle talking, and as you approach them, you can see that they're not happy about something and they're animated, and then when you walk up, it gets really, really quiet. And you say, hey guys, how's it going? And they won't look you in the eye. Oh, we're, we're fine. There is nothing more frustrating, more hurtful than that kind of a situation. And sometimes your discernment says, <laughs> oh, there's something going on here. And then you find out later, lo and behold, sure enough, there was something going on there. You know, if a man is of honest report, if a man is not double-tongued, if a man is loyal and faithful, he will express his dissatisfaction or his problems. He'll have enough, and here's where it's at, he'll have enough backbone and spirituality to deal with it in a calm but ethical manner, privately. And the same thing goes with pastors. A pastor should never use this pulpit as a place to bully his people. I've known pastors that would say things behind a wooden box that they would never say privately, one-on-one, -on -one, eyeball to eyeball, because they would know that uh, there might be retribution. I may have to listen to what they have to say. Here in this church service, it's not an open forum. It's the pastor telling you what he wants to say. In a private meeting, it's I get to say what I want to say, and then you get to say what you want to say. That's the way that conflict is resolved. Proverbs says that we're supposed to debate our cause with our neighbor himself and discover not a secret to another. When you got a problem with somebody, the first person, really the first person you should talk to is God. And then the second, if necessary... You go to that person that you have the disagreement or the problem with. That's ethical. You can disagree and you can still be 100% loyalty. 
And you know, loyalty is a lost character trait in today's culture. If we're going to be the kind of church that God wants us to be, we need to make sure that we maintain those ethics. Not double-tongued. No hidden agendas. And then the next thing it says, not given to much wine. Well, we talked about that last week, the marriage of Canaan. We talked about the wine issue and how that there are two different kinds of wine in the Bible, alcohol and the new wine, which is grape juice. And I don't have time to go into that uh, today, but I do know this, that the alcohol issue is a different issue today than it was in Bible times. Nowadays, we have commercials, we have industry we have it as a lifestyle and, a, and an identity, not just simply a beverage. And that's the fact of the matter. And by the way, for any of you that are ignorant of the Bible and choose to say that, well, there's, it's okay to have socially have a glass of wine or a beer if that's all that I have. For those of you that don't know what the Bible says and that is your stand, let me say this to you. In Bible days, if that were the case, I'm not saying it is, all right? But if it were the case, it was before the distilling process was invented and the alcohol content of today's wine and beer, which is considered low, that was the strong drink and liquor back then. The wine itself that was fermented had probably about 15 to 20% of the alcohol content of today's wine. So I'm not saying that's not my defense. I'm just saying if you believe it's okay, you're still not on safe ground as far as how you're conducting yourself today. So you can think on that and believe whatever you want because you're probably going to do that anyways. That was a little bit maybe in your face, but if you're a Christian and a social drinker, you deserved it. All right, not greedy of filthy lucre. Not greedy of filthy lucre. That's a, an easy one, no comment necessary. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And then it says here that the deacon should first be proven. That means that there's some experience, there's some maturity, there's some it's not just somebody who talks the talk, but it's somebody that we've observed that, hey, that's a soldier for Christ. We've been to battle together, and they have stood and been tried, and they're true. They're faithful. A deacon should be proven, and then a deacon should be blameless. And that's the same thing that is said of the pastor. Listen, when it comes to all these issues, whether it's the wine issue uh, notice here it says after blameless, it says that the deacons should be the husbands of one wife. Alright, there's another issue that comes up in Christianity. Marriage and divorce and remarried preachers and deacons. Listen, uh, you can teach what you want, do what you want. As, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that term blameless puts all of that in a high ground light. Another preacher, another pastor wants to have a divorced and remarried deacons, then they're going to have to answer to God for it. But as far as I'm concerned, um, we're going to take the high road and we're going to look at that blameless. And I don't want anything to come in that could potentially hurt someone or cause controversy. Being a pastor or a deacon 
isn't the only way to serve the Lord. Amen? And so, for the cause of Christ, for the culture that we live in, these areas that are destroying people's lives and homes, as far as I'm concerned, I'm just going to take the high road and other people can do whatever the Lord leads them to do. I won't necessarily criticize them. Uh, whether they criticize me or not, that's, that's their prerogative. But uh, that word blameless means uh, that envelops, that puts an umbrella over a lot of conduct and a lot of activity. It says here that the deacons should be ruling their children and house well. Now notice here in uh, verse number number 12, let the deacons be the husbands of, of one wife, ruling their children and their houses well. After that, it doesn't say anything like it does on verse number 5 with the pastor. Notice here it says, after verse 4, it says, "...one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God?" Hey, Scripture right there. Like it or lump it, the Bible says that it's the pastor that's supposed to be ruling or taking care of the church of God, not the deacons. Now, that is something I guarantee you that if anybody hears me preach this, gets my CD, or listens to it on the radio, there are probably some deacons in our community that would just be shaking their head. To which I say, give me some Bible, folks. Give me some Bible. If we don't get back to the Bible, how can we expect God to bless us? We could get our credibility back in our community if we just get back to the Bible. And then it goes on to talk about deacons' wives. It says in, um, look at verse number 11, even so must their wives be grave. That's honest, not slanders. It means they're not gossipers. They have control over their tongue. They're sober. They're faithful in all things. So God puts some requirements, some qualifications upon deacons as well as deacons' wives. Now notice how that all these expectations are about character and spirituality. None of them have anything to do with how influential a person is. None of them have anything to do with how affluent a person is. None of them have anything to do with how talented or popular a person is or successful in this world. None of them. They all have to do with character and spirituality. Now, I don't, please don't take this wrong. None of them actually say anything about being faithful tithers or even faithful church attenders. But I think that it's safe to say that if a man has these characters and qualities, that the biblical principles of faithfulness, whether it be giving or attendance or participation, that's just going to go with the territory. My next uh, section here is function over position. Function over position. Notice in 1 Timothy 3 and verse number 13, it says, For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. As we read in Acts 6, verse number 4, the Apostle says, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. 
Sometimes we focus too much on a position or a title when we need to focus on the function. Listen, every single one of you men here in this church, you say, well, I'm not a deacon, so that doesn't apply to me. What? You want to be a help? The word deacon means a minister, a servant, a helper, right? Well, every Christian man ought to have a desire in his heart to help his pastor and his church for the cause of Christ, right? So we need to focus on function over position. Listen, ladies, you'll never be the the office of a deacon here at this church, but you can function, you can be within your place, you can be a help, and you can have these qualities that a deacon or a deacon's wife is supposed to have. I would to God that all of God's people met the qualifications, if you want to call it that, of a pastor, a pastor's wife, a pastor's home, a deacon, a deacon's wife, and a deacon's home. I would to God that it was that way. This is there aren't any clicks. There aren't any. Listen, there was a click in the church in Jerusalem. The Grecians were murmuring against the Hebrews. You're going to have people from different social standings and different cultures and so forth. Listen, we don't just. We ought to. I believe that the love of God and the Holy Spirit is cross-cultural, cross-personality. Doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit is what we need. The office of a deacon. And let me mention this to you. In many cases, we we have the term assistant pastor. You don't find the term assistant pastor in the Bible. In function, in most in many cases, not all, in function, the assistant pastor is basically just a full time deacon. He's assisting, he's helping his pastor, doing menial things that would take the pastor away from the study and the ministry of the Word, and he is assisting his pastor. Now, there are some that in function, you have a multiplicity of pastors. I look back at the start of Temple Baptist Church. You had Pastor Lonnie Wilson, and you had Associate Pastor Mac Pennell. These were two men that were both pastors, and they worked together in function. You had a plurality of pastors. And that was a wonderful thing for those of you that go back into those days. Man, you experienced something that most of Christianity has never ever experienced. Two men, both bearing the same burden and both working together with the cooperation and the spirit in which those two men had. That's beautiful. But then this church has also afforded the privilege of having assistant pastors who, yes, they've been pastoral, they've been ministerial, but they've also taken care diligently of all of the details so that the pastor can minister in the spiritual needs and areas. It's a beautiful thing, and it's the way that things ought to be. But whatever a particular church or pastor needs in any given culture, any given generation, the function is to free up the pastor to minister to the spiritual needs of the flock and preach the gospel to the lost. Call it what you want. These men in Acts chapter number 6 were not called deacons, but they functioned as one. In 1 Timothy 3, they're called deacons. In 2019, we have men called assistant pastors. Some men are more pastoral than they are assistant. Some are more assistant than they are pastoral. 
let's focus on the scriptural principle and function and not the title. It's not a hierarchy, folks. Now let me give you, just for a few minutes, and I'm almost done, I promise, just an insight for those of you that are new to this ministry. Here is an insight into the deacon ministry here at Temple Baptist Church. We have three deacons. Uh, we have lifetime deacons. We don't have elections. They don't rotate off. That's just the way that uh, we've done it here. And it's worked. And uh, it's worked beautifully. But the deacons here, they help handle benevolence issues when it comes to helping people financially. Almost all of that or anything of any significant amount goes through them. And uh, we talk about it and we pray about it. Uh, they help out uh, with visiting the sick and shut-ins. They help with details um, of um, supporting the, the ministry that the pastor has established. Uh, then we have financial accountability. That's one of the, this a, a huge thing that our deacons do. As a pastor, I uh, have the privilege, I have the God-given responsibility of leading and running and making decisions regarding the finances, but the deacons are here to hold me accountable. And any major decisions, I, I mean, as far as our constitution, the previous pastor didn't necessarily bounce all those things off of the deacons, but I have chosen uh, to hold myself accountable and use these men with their wisdom and their insight into what God's doing here as sounding boards. And that has been a huge, huge help to this preacher. There's a lot of things, a lot of decisions that I would have never been able to make the right one if it hadn't have been for the financial accountability and the wisdom of these men. They help make missionary support decisions. Uh, they help with church discipline if and when that should ever happen. Praise the Lord, it hasn't uh, happened in a long, long time. And hopefully it will be a long, long time. Maybe never that we ever have to deal with those kind of church problems. Uh, they are there to form a pulpit committee if something should happen to the pastor. Uh, they provide wisdom and counsel. The Bible says, with much counsel, make thy war. And in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Once again, their wisdom is greatly needed and appreciated. They help out with evangelistic outreach, and then they set an example of faithfulness and enthusiasm of what God is doing here in this church. And so that is, they're not necessarily waiting tables like these men in Acts 6, but these are the needs that we have here at Temple Baptist Church. In conclusion, go back to Acts chapter number 6. And I want you to notice in verse number 7 that when they appointed these men to serve as deacons, it says in verse 7, and the word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. That's a lot of people getting saved. That's a lot more Bible being preached. And it says, a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Not only were they reaching quantity, but boy, they were, they were, they had the power of God to reach into those almost impossible to reach places. The high priest. I mean, can you imagine? If the church had so much power and so much credibility that the Catholic priests were getting born again and walking the aisle and getting saved, 
you imagine that? Man, that's a lot of power. That's what's going on in this church. And that's why it's so important that we understand this principle that God's work done God's way will bring God's results. We don't have to make it happen. If we did, if we did make it happen, we'd have to hold it together. Life's too short. We need God. And so I leave you with this question. I know for some of you, you might be sitting there thinking, it's like, well, I'm, I'm not a deacon. I'll probably never be a deacon. What does this have to do with me? Well, I want to challenge you this morning to ask yourself this question. How can I improve the character and spirituality of my life to be a better help to my pastor and church? That's what's going on in Acts chapter number 6. That's what, in many ways, is going on right here at Temple Baptist Church. But there is always a need for more and better quality character and spirituality of God's people. Would you ask yourself that question? Are there some areas in my life, maybe some things that I need to get rid of, maybe some things that I'm deficient in, that I know that I would be a better help to my church and pastor, I would be a better servant of God if I would just allow the Holy Spirit to make these changes in my life. I hope that you'll ask yourself that question here today. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank You, Lord, for the Word of God. Thank You, Lord, for these principles. And Lord, I know that um, for some, this message might have been somewhat uncomfortable. I think of the many, many people that I've talked to over the years that have been hurt by church polity, policy and politics and problems and splits and divisions and all the feuding and fussing that sadly goes on among your people. I think about my old own childhood growing up and the things that I saw and some of the attitudes that I had because things weren't done in a spiritual and scriptural manner. I realize, Lord, that Satan wants to do everything he can to sow discord and create division. But I pray that we, we would be wise, that we would understand what the Bible says. Lord, we would discern how these principles apply to us here today in this day and age that we live in. I pray, Father, that we would be a spiritual church. I'm thankful for what you're doing, what you've done. But I also realize, Lord, that there's so much more that we need to be. I pray, Father, publicly and personally that you'd help me to be the pastor that I need to be to faithfully feed this flock. I pray for boldness, I pray for courage, I pray for wisdom, and I pray for compassion and understanding. But I pray also, Lord, for our men, God, that you would just raise up more men with the character of Stephen and these other six. I pray, Father, that you'd help our ladies, Lord, to be the help and be the example that they certainly can be. And I pray that if there be anyone here in our midst that is not saved, I think about this Acts 6, and Lord, it says that many more, many were added to the church, and it was after this whole topic came up. What a joy it would be that maybe today somebody would realize that they're a sinner in need of Jesus Christ as their Savior. Maybe today they'd come to you. What a blessing that that would be. 
I don't know the needs of every heart, but you do. And I pray, God, that you would just uh, call us all. Those of us that are saved, I pray that you would lead us into sanctification and godly lives. God, have your will and way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Hymn number 308 in your hymn book. If God spoke to your heart, we invite you to come. If you're not saved, why not just get it settled before you leave this place? If you've got unconfessed sin in your life, something that you've allowed, and you know the Holy Spirit's working you over, and you know you need to get it right, why don't you just come down here and get it right? Maybe you're here and you'd say, you know what? I need to be that kind of man or woman that uh, the Word of God was talking about today. Maybe you need to come forward and make a commitment to start being what you know that you ought to be. As we sing, the altar is open. You come as God leads you.